This is a manly message. Okay, now, when I say that, and here it's called the faces of lions. Wait till you get the scripture that this comes from. It's really good. One of the number one things I would say that has been completely stripped of Christianity today would be the manly stuff. It's the impetus of what a man would bring to the table. I'm a very big fan of what we could call the feminine stuff. And I could offend you even by defining something as feminine and something as masculine. However, we oftentimes feel completely comfortable when someone says that a man needs to get in touch with his feminine side. No one's offended, including the guys are not offended by that because they typically know what that means. Yeah, we need to be better listeners. Yeah, we need to be a little more sensitive. Yeah, you know, we're a little hard and a little rough around the edges. So it probably would be good for us to get in touch with our feminine side. Well, I would like to pose the challenge that the bride of Christ needs to get in touch with her masculine side, not to the exclusion of her feminine strengths. The fact that the church today emphasizes kindness, sensitivity, love, mercy, a warm heart is wonderful. I'm not against that. I think those are critical dimensions of the nature of Jesus Christ. However, the nature of Jesus Christ is only half-baked if that's what's represented. This is the same Jesus, you know, because we look at Jesus and we see, you know, little lambs and kids and, you know, he's, he's helping the prostitute that's about to be stoned and he lifts her up and he restores her and uh, go and sin no more. Oh, it's just so wonderful, so soft and gentle. This same Jesus grabs a whip and goes into the temple of Jehovah, turns over the, the money changers uh, tables and runs them out hightail. Our God is a holy God. Our God is a righteous God. Our God is purity. Our God is holiness enunciated. He is other than this world. And we in this world cannot participate with the nature of God. We cannot enter his presence unless we somehow become like him. Unless we fulfill the perfect righteousness of the law. Because that's the only thing that can be welcomed into his presence. Well that is pretty stiff. That is why the good news is so good. Because what Jesus Christ did is he made a way for us to enter into his presence. But it wasn't in violation of his righteousness. It wasn't in discarding his holiness. He maintained the integrity of it the entire time. He still maintained the fact that he is a just God. And he poured out his wrath upon his son instead of on us. An amazing reality. But the epic nature of the gospel goes far beyond the fact that Jesus took the penalty and the hit that was rightfully ours. And it's more than just the fact that he made a way into his presence. It's that he made a way for us to enter into him, to be clothed in his righteousness, to be shielded by his holiness, so that we could enter into the terrifying, almighty presence of God and not be consumed. Why did he bring us in? Why did he bring us in to Christ? So that he could get inside of us. He brings us in to Christ so that he can get in us. Because we are helpless in this world. The equivalent of lambs being matched up against wolf packs. God sends us out and says, go do it, lambs. And we are nothing. We are ill-equipped for the job description that we have as Christians. We can't do it. A lamb cannot take on the wolf pack. But the great humor of heaven is the God Almighty, the God of the universe, the Lord of hosts, the general of generals, 
The one who possesses all might and all power and all authority takes the body of that little lamb and makes it his home. And then when the wolves surround it, he growls through that lamb with the face of a lion. We as Christians, in one simple nutshell, bear two faces. We have the faces of lambs to this world. Because they assume, they look at the God of the Old Testament, the one that literally walked into Canaan and mowed it down because they stood in rebellion against the law of God, against the person of Jehovah. He mowed it down. And we see the face of a lion in the Old Testament and we're like, oh, I'm so glad he's not that God anymore. He is that God. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God of today. If you believe that, you haven't read your New Testament. However, he clothes himself in a lamb's clothing. He has the face of a lamb. And that is the privilege we have with our God is to encounter him as a lamb. And he, he beckons us forward. And, you know, a lamb is just a lot less intimidating than a lion. But our God possesses, and this is the great miracle of Christianity, is he sends us forth his lambs with the faces of lions. We are here on earth with a growl, but not a growl to take down people, but to exert his authority and to see him crowned as the king of the universe. We have the job of lambs, but are given the faces of lions to complete the task. We behave and interact with men and women with the gentleness of lambs, with the love and the tender-heartedness of lambs, and yet we exert the authority of Jesus Christ on behalf of every other human on this earth to see the full reward of the cross gained in their life. We bear the great and majestic message of Jehovah in the, the little fluffy bodies of lambs with the faces of lions, and we will not be pushed back. Surround us with 10,000 wolves, and we will continue to march. What is that? That is the gospel at work within the Christian. The Christian is not daunted by anything but by God. The only thing they fear is God. Just imagine life on different terms for a second. Imagine having no fear. Absolutely no fear except for one thing, and that is your God. You tremble before him. You know his holiness. You know his power. You know his righteous standard. And you tremble before the reality that he is a consuming fire. And yet, the safest place is right up next to your shepherd's leg. And he reaches down, the very one who could crush you in but a I mean, slight breath, but a thought. You could just be crushed. For eternity, the same God reaches down and pats you and expresses his love for you. That is the reality of a Christian. There's no diminishment of the majesty of our God. It is the extraordinary nature of his love. That he can be love and holiness simultaneously. That he can be a consuming fire and yet somehow with that fire not burn us up. Instead, he purifies us the same way gold goes into fire and comes out actually more valuable. We go into God and we actually come out not burned away, but more valuable. There's a greater purpose in us. There's a greater sense of something in us. That's the gospel at work. First Chronicles 12, 8. In First Chronicles 11, we are walking through 
David and his mighty men. First Chronicles 11 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Uh, and it's walking through David and his mighty men. David, let me give you a little background on David. This will maybe even give a little more robustness to this message. David is not seen as the rightful king of Israel. God has chosen him. He's hallmarked him. The prophet Samuel has dumped oil upon his head and signified David is actually, in reality, the king of Israel. The problem is, the king that God rejected, Saul, is still sitting squarely upon the throne. Jesus Christ is the rightful king of your life. The fact that you have not acknowledged him as such doesn't mean he is not the rightful king. And so for many of us, we still, sit, we still sit on the throne of our existence, as Saul did. The best thing Saul could have done is given up his throne to the one that God said was a better man. I rejected you, Saul. You disobeyed the word of God. You've been living in rebellion against me. I have a better man for the throne of Israel. But Saul maintained his grip, and he died with his hand firmly upon that throne and that scepter. He would not give it up. And many of us do the same thing in our life. David has been anointed and there's a better man to rule your life. Why we think we can rule our life better than God, I'm not exactly sure. But a lot of it has to do with the misunderstanding of the nature of God, who he is, what his intention is. We want life on our terms. God knows that the only way for life to truly happen in us is if it's on his terms. So David has walked the course, 10 or 11 years of literally being hunted by Saul. The season of persecution in which we live, by the way, where Jesus is the rightful king of this universe, yet he's not acknowledged as such. In other words, you could say, well, he doesn't seem to have accomplished much on that cross because if that is why, you know, he's he's king, well, he doesn't look like king down here. He establishes his kingdom first and foremost amongst his men and women or amongst his mighties. David was recognized as king of Israel, but by a little troop by a little troop known as the Mighty Men. They surrounded him, and they confirmed with him. They they stood in covenant with him to say, by life or by death, we will see you become king of Israel. Welcome to Christianity. We come in the cave of Adullam, in the place of persecution, in the place of hiding, in the midst of hostile territory here on earth, where Jesus Christ is considered anathema. He is considered the great opposition. And we enter in to that persecution and that suffering right along with him and we confirm him. And we covenant with him and we say, by life or by death, you will be crowned king on this earth. And God, you can spend me any way you want. Break this body, spend this blood for your glory. That's the position of the mighties. And those that surrounded David became as David. David killed lions and bears with his bare hands. David stood against the giant Goliath, a man who many would consider over 12 feet tall. I know some commentaries say nine. Depends on how you measure a cubit. I prefer the 12 feet because it's even more impressive. Whether it's nine or 12, the guy was the greatest warrior in his generation. The entire nation was trembling before it. This young guy who wasn't even invited to the battle comes strolling in and said, I'll take him on. He knew the power of his God. Lions, bears, giants. Then it says of David, Saul slew his thousands, David is tens of thousands. David was surrounded by entire armies, and he was undaunted and without fear. 
because he knew the power and the strength of his God. A lamb with the face of a lion. I mean, just a little shepherd boy. The guy loved lambs. He held lambs and he coddled lambs. And then it's like, wait a minute. Something's going to try and take on my lambs? And he turned into the face of a lion. That's Christianity. That's Jesus Christ. You can feel that warmth of his embrace and that closeness. But if anything ever tries to touch the purchase of the cross, you will see the face of a lion on your king. And he will break the jaws of the evildoer to remove that prey out of their teeth. Job 29. That is manly stuff that is missing from the body of Christ today. To actually exert the authority of Jesus Christ in this earth to protect the lambs. To say, not on my watch. In our home, we call it the big meanie. Satan. You know, Goliath was a big meanie. He was, you know, he worked for the big meanie. And as Hudson and I have discussed it many times, if the big meanie comes to our house, hey, I want to come in and hurt someone. If daddy just goes, you know what? I probably should open the door. It's rude to keep him outside. And I want to show a Christianity which is tenderhearted, which is inviting, which is hospitable to all things. I want to show that I'm tolerant. So come on in, big meanie. Come on in and do to my family whatever you see fit. Because I love you. That isn't love. That isn't love for my God. That isn't love for my wife. That isn't love for my children. I've been assigned sheep, if you will. I'm a shepherd in my home. And the manly stuff demands that if there is a big meanie that comes banging on the door of the looty house, that I would say to my wife and kids, get down in the basement, daddy's taking care of this. And I expel it from the property. And I know that as I stand up for the purposes of Jesus Christ in my home, that God fights my battles for me. It doesn't matter if it's a pack of wolves outside that door. I stand up and bear the chest of Jesus Christ with a face of a lion to protect that which has been entrusted to me. That is how Christianity works. I always am seeking the soul of those I'm around. I'm not after a battle with flesh and blood. I'm after a battle with spiritual powers that have a design to take down the church of Jesus Christ. I've told, talked with Hudson about it many times. That if daddy's gone and mommy's gone, who's responsible if a big meanie comes to the door to stand up for the Ludi family? She's me. I go, that's right. And if you stand up to fight the big meanie, who stands up to fight for you? He goes, Jesus. That's a truth right there, spoken through the mouth of a five-year-old. He knows that when he fights God's battles, as it says in Scottish Chiefs, God armeth the patriot. I love that statement. God armeth the patriot. Because the man who stands up for truth, who stands up for righteousness, who stands up for God's value system, is backed by the strength of God himself. We are missing something. In fact, even as I say these things, there's some of you that are a little offended because you feel like this is an endorsement of cruelty and abuse and violence. No. The sword that God has given us as men is never to be used to harm or to hinder. It is used to protect and to preserve. We are the garrison of the church of Jesus Christ. A garrison means a defense. We are not going out and going, poking people and hitting them over the head. You know, and saying, you, you're going to hell. That isn't how the church works. I know it's been modeled incorrectly. But we are given strength to defend 
the borders. We extend them. We expel everything in the land of promise that doesn't belong there. Then we put up a garrison around it. And we say nothing enters. I have a job with my family. And that's to protect it. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Which means he always lives to barricade our life from the big meaning. He always lives to be the strong one on our behalf when we feel weak. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. This was a confusing thing for the Jews when Jesus came because all throughout history, the battles with evil had been external battles on a real battlefield with real weaponry. And when Jesus came, he modeled the entire Old Testament, the same God, and he fleshed it out. And yet... He didn't fight the way we were thinking he should fight. He went after something beyond the physical things that were attacking him. For instance, if you were watching a puppet show and you wanted to really take down the puppet show, you don't clip off one of the puppets, you know, cut the, cut the little wires or the, or the rope. You go after the puppeteers. The Philistine army is controlled by puppeteers, which are spiritual powers. And when Jesus came, he turned the battle upside down and he said, no longer are you fighting the Philistines. Now you're fighting the powers that puppeteer the Philistines. Why? So that you can see the Philistines set free to come into the kingdom of heaven to fight on behalf of Jesus Christ. It's a complete turning upside down of the system. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against power, spiritual powers and principalities. It's in another realm. And we are equipped. It says the weapons of our warfare are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. These are David's mighty men. And of the Gadites, they're separated themselves unto David, men of might and men of war fit for the battle that could handle shield and buckler, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were as swift as the rose upon the mountains. I don't know too many guys that don't want to be included in that description. It's like in the men of Ellerslie, covenanted with Jesus Christ. And they were men of might and men of war fit for the battle that could handle shield and buckler, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were as swift as the rose upon the mountains. I oftentimes say that Proverbs 31 is an enunciation of, you know, oftentimes women claim it as their own. It's like, well, we have Proverbs 31. And all the guys are looking around going, we sort of got gypped. We didn't get anything. We get Job 29. Job 29, it is the incredible picture of a lamb with the face of a lion. The face of a lamb and the face of a lion, how it works in a man. I always say it's the original brave-hearted gospel, Job chapter 29. It's a man who is literally making the widow's heart sing for joy. He's a father to the poor. He's an advocate for the orphan. And yet, it says that he breaks the jaws of the evildoer and removes the prey from their teeth. He knows when to be strong and when to be soft. The church of Jesus Christ today only knows how to be soft. But we must know when to be strong. We must know when to be firm. Because there is a battle to fight and we cannot just roll over and play dead right now. This is the time for battle. We need the faces of lions on these little furry bodies known as sheep. Beholding the perfect form. I'm just going to get some raw material out here. And if they be ashamed of all that they have done... This is in Ezekiel. Ezekiel has just been shown the pattern of the temple, the perfect temple, never built on earth. Many people, they call it the Ezekiel temple or the heavenly temple. And if they be ashamed of all that they have done, speaking of Israel, show them the form of the house. 
It's been measured out before him, an entire form, like an architectural design has been measured. And the fashion thereof, and the goings out thereof, and the comings in thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the ordinances thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the laws thereof, and write it in their sight, that they may keep the whole form thereof, and all the ordinance thereof, and do them. Very strange request that is being made to Ezekiel. It's a very boring thing to read. Ezekiel, what, 41 through 43, and most of us just skip right over it, because this angel of the Lord comes down and with a measuring rod measures out the entirety of this temple that no one even knows what the temple is. It's not like one of the earthly temples that has been built. It's different. And this angel is measuring it out and then he says, show this to the house of Israel that they would basically have their sin exposed. That they would see the form of the house. This is the perfect form. This is the way it's supposed to be. That doesn't make a lot of sense to us until the New Testament. When Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? This is speaking of Jesus Christ. The form of the house, perfectly measured in front of Ezekiel, was Jesus Christ. Perfect righteousness, the way a man ought to be. It was measured. Show this pattern to the people of Israel that they would know their sin. They would realize how unlike the pattern they are. There is a way that men ought to be, and we are not like it. But Jesus is like it. And so there's this pattern all throughout Scripture. It's known as the form or the pattern. We call it the pattern of doctrine. The pattern is shown in the mount. That's how you were supposed to build the temple. It was according to a pattern. What is this pattern? It's Jesus Christ. Perfect righteousness, the way a man ought to be. Hold fast the form. To grip with unyielding resolve. This is Paul's statement to Timothy. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. To grip with unyielding resolve. There's a form that's been passed down to you. There is a way that a man or a Christian ought to be. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. Don't forsake it. This is important. What you're going to notice is I'm going to be building a case here. And that is, there is a place for tender hearts, for kindness. There is a place for turning the other cheek. There is a place for when someone asks for your cloak, you give them your, your, your tunic also. I might have gotten that backwards. In other words, there is a place for kneeling down and washing feet. And there's also a place for standing firm and not moving. And we need to know how to distinguish between the two of when this world sees the face of a lamb and when they see the face of a lion. It says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God knows. He has some way of understanding perfectly because he he is the creator of all. He has perfect righteousness. He knows when to show his face of a lion and he knows when to show the face of a lamb. But as Christ is the son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So here's what you see. You see this concept. And I didn't put in all the hold fast scriptures. It's, it's a study in and of itself. It's really neat. I love the term hold fast. It's just to grip with unyielding resolve. It shows some manly stuff there. In other words, not a limp wrist. We were talking about handshakes, the power of a firm handshake this week at Ellerslie. What is the importance of a firm handshake? It shows intentionality. It shows focus. It shows a givenness, an exertion. And God says, firm, grip, 
This is important. Do you realize that so many of us hear truth and just goes out the other side instead of gripping it with unyielding resolve? No, this is God's truth. This is the pattern. This is the form. I am not going to let it go. We are that house. And this is the form. And we do not let that form go. The ancient war cry of the chosen. Rock Hazak. You guys ready for this one? This is the war cry of Israel. All the way since Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, when Moses was preparing the troops to enter into the land of promise. It's his last speech. Deuteronomy is one enormous speech. And it's a big one. It's a doozy of a speech. He goes through the entire history of Israel. And then he prepares them and gives them the entire pattern for how they ought to behave in the land of promise. We have Egypt, we have the wilderness, and then we have the promised land. We start in Egypt in slavery to sin into this world. And whatever the, the world tells us, whatever Pharaoh tells us in Egypt, we do. We have no choice. We're living in sin. We are under the thumb of it. Jesus Christ and his blood sets us free. But there's this wilderness. And we have to pass through this wilderness. The wilderness is important for one very important thing, and that's to expose our weakness and to show our need for God. The Israelites stayed there 40 years. God didn't intend them to stay for 40 years. He called them. He says, I've, I bring you out of Egypt in order that I can bring you in to the land flowing with milk and honey. He had an intention to bring out, to bring in, but most of us as Christians live in the wilderness. And if we were to be honest about our experience in Christianity, it's not that exciting. It's like we're surviving. We have good thoughts, you know, about heaven and things like that. But life here on earth is miserable. Well, so is life in the wilderness. It's hot. The food stinks. You know, there isn't a lot of water. And so, yes, you have a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and your shoes aren't wearing out. So it's not that you don't have any evidence of God in your life, but it's very miserable. And it's very hard to evangelize, by the way. Say, oh, people of Egypt, come on out and and share with me the joys of the wilderness. It's because there aren't any joys there. So evangelism goes into the tank. This is modern Christianity. We don't have anything to testify about. There's no power. There's no life. There's no milk and honey. There's no fruition. You know, the, the fruit, they literally, the fruit was so big in Hebron, in the land of promise, it took two men to carry out, what is that called of the grapes? Uh, a cluster of grapes. Two men. I don't know, when I carry a cluster of grapes out of the store, I don't need two men to do it. It's this little dinky thing. Okay, we produce small fruit here. But Hebron, in the land of promise, the spirit land, the, the, the fruit of the spirit is big. It's robust, but it's there. And the enemy doesn't care about you in the, in the wilderness. You want to hang out in the wilderness? It's a lot easier life spiritually. You need the face of a lion to go into the land of promise. God has called you forward. And so Moses says, Rock Kazak to the Israelites. It became the war cry of Israel. And mostly all of us are looking around going, that doesn't make any sense to me. And it didn't do anything to you. It didn't cause you to rise up and go, yeah! To the Israelites, during the Six-Day War back in the 40s, they literally, rock And the Israelites, it was steel within their being. It was this unyielding resolve within them. It was like a spiritual impetus of adrenaline into their bloodstream. And they went out and performed exploits. This is just back in the 40s. 
Rock Kazakh. So it's about time that we get familiar with this. Because this isn't just for the Israelites of the national variety. It is for spiritual Israel. Those that are fighting the battles of God. Therefore shall you keep all the commandments which I command you. This is Moses talking. That I, which I command you this day that ye may possess, that, I'm sorry, that ye may be strong and go in and possess the land whither ye go to possess it. This is the first mention from Moses of Kazakh. Be strong. That ye may be strong. You keep the commandments so that you can be strong. God wants to make you strong. He wants to make you able to carry out the impossible. And I want you to realize how impossible this is. Israel is a whole bunch of brickmakers. Now, yes, 40 years has passed, and I'm sure that they began to be trained in military arts. But long and short, I don't care how strong of a nation you are. You've been living in the wilderness, not the easiest place to live. You've been nomads, and there are 31 hostile empires waiting for you. Not just hostile, but strong empires with walled cities. And the walls reached up to the heavens. They weren't the type of thing you just go, oh yeah, let's mow that down today. It was impossible. And they, the Israelites, out of their own testimony, were as grasshoppers before it. It wasn't just that they were hostile, and it wasn't just that they had walled cities. These were nations with giant warriors in them. I know that might be a little strange. You go, I don't know about that. I, I question the biblical integrity of that. They were there. And they were huge. One of the guys, Og, his bedstead was 18 and a half feet. Could you imagine? It's hard enough to come in against one little piddly nation and go, let's go get them. 31 waiting for you. And what does Moses say? Be strong. Be strong and of good courage. Rock Kazakh. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for thou must go with this people unto the land which the Lord hath sworn unto their fathers to give them, and thou shalt cause them to inherit it. Now those words don't mean a lot to us. Be strong and of good courage. First of all, I... I sort of take offense with the translation, good courage. Okay, that sounds like having a good attitude. Good courage, wait till I give you the the Hebrew word for it. Oh, it's good. It's really good. Be strong, not that impressive of a statement. If I said to you guys, hey, hey, go and be strong today. That's not a battle cry. That's not going to motivate you. When you're going out into war, you need something that's going to be an elixir in your soul that's going to cause you, instead of retreating, when you begin to see the size of the enemy, to actually growl with an expectation because your God is with you. Wait till you see what my God does today. We don't have that unyielding grip. We don't have that resolve. We don't have the grr in our soul. We must have it. And he gave Joshua, the son of Nun, a charge. Now remember, we have Moses... And there's being a passing off that Joshua is going to be the one to lead them into the land of promise. Joshua is not an accidental name. This is a man of salvation. It's the same name that you would equate to Jesus in the New Testament. Yeshua. It's that man of salvation, the man who brings salvation. And so Moses, the law, 
It says that the law was a schoolmaster which prepares us for Christ. The law, Moses, passes off and has prepared everyone, and he turns over the nation of Israel to Yeshua. And it says, and he gave Joshua, the son of Nun, a charge, and said, Be strong and of good courage, for thou shalt bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore unto them, and I will be with thee. Be strong and of good courage. Now we're in Joshua. The book kicks off and it says, Rock Kazak, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swore unto their fathers to give them. Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Do you know this to be a fact? Have you ever had the Rock Kazak shouted to your soul? Have you ever had the military general of Israel stand before you and challenge your soul to rise up? I don't care how daunting the giants may be before you. Do not be dismayed. Do not fear. For your God is with you and he will go with you whithersoever you go. You take the territory that God has given you. I don't care if it's lust. I don't care if it's pride. I don't care if it's fear or anxiety. Whatever the battle is, whatever the giant is before you, rock kazak. Be strong. Be of good courage. Good courage. Okay, wait, wait till you hear the proper definition for that one. Whosoever he be that doth rebel against thy commandment and will not hearken unto thy words and all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and of a good courage. The next of the five kings. Okay, listen to this. This is fascinating. So this is in Joshua. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makedah in peace. They were victorious. Okay, so Israel has gone in and they were strong and of good courage. And now all the people are returning at Makedah in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. So all of the hostages, not one would breathe a murmur against Israel. Then said Joshua, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. Remember, they're taking a land. God has defined it. He says, from the river Jordan to the great sea to the river Euphrates, anything in this territory, it's yours. I've given it to you. Anywhere you put the sole of your feet, it's yours. You claim it, you be strong and of good courage. Take it. In the process, they're bringing down kings. And these kings are all gathered together and thrust into a cave and a big rock is put in front of it. These, cave, these, these kings are sequestered. Open the mouth of the cave. And out come the five kings. And it came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war, which went with him, come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. So Joshua asks the captains and the men of war, this is our privilege. And he stretches out the necks of the king and they put their feet upon the necks of these kings and they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. And here it is. Rock Kazak. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. And afterwards Joshua smote them, and slew them, and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. 
And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded and they took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid and laid great stones in the cave's mouth which remain until this very day. We have two very important things that are taking place here. First of all, the position of those under Joshua. That they are to be of strength, they are to have strength and be of great courage because God will do this to all of their enemies if they obey the commands, if they follow his way. This picture is strangely reminiscent of something in the New Testament. And you could say, well, I'm choosing not to link it because the five evil kings being hanged on a tree and then being thrown into a tomb with a rock rolled in front of it. That's not Jesus, though. That's not a picture of Jesus. Cursed is the man who hangs upon a tree. Israel understood this principle. Cursed is the man. They were cursed men. And they were taken down, their bodies were taken down at evening and thrown into a cave and a rock was rolled in front of it. Who took the curse for you? And why did he take the curse for you? And why was he thrown into a cave for you? So that those five necks could be stretched out before you and you could stick your feet upon them. He made all things new. He corrected what was wrong. He made a way into that throne room of grace, into the artillery of the heavenlies, so that we could take the, warf- the weapons of our warfare that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, and we could see the five kings in our life brought low with their necks stretched out and our feet upon them. Pride, lust, fear. These have no more control over the land of Israel, which is you. You must exert the authority gained upon that cross through your Joshua, your Yeshua, and no more take his guff. You exert with the face of a lion within your soul, and you say, rock kazak. King David's charge. We have Moses, then we have Joshua, and then all these years later, I don't know, someone has said, someone has said 500 years later, what's David's command? Then, thou shalt, then shalt thou prosper if thou takest heed to fulfill the statutes and judgments with the Lord's charge Moses with concerning Israel. He says to Solomon, his son, be strong and of good courage. Rock Kazak. David now is passing it along. All this time without the command of Rock Kazak in Israel, from Moses to Joshua, and then suddenly David is passing off the baton and he gives the ancient war cry. Dread not, nor be dismayed. This is a great statement. Remember we were talking about the house of God? There's a form. I'm going to start weaving these together here. And David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and of good courage, and do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee, until thou hast finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Be strong and of good courage. For what? To go into battle, to build the house of the Lord. There is a battle that we are seeing in, the, in, in Joshua, and it's for the promised land. But that promised land in the New Testament is you. God is after a territory. The enemy is after a territory. All 31 hostile empires are camped within the souls of men. That is why we are naturally bent away from God. But the Spirit of God begins to work and then there's a cry within our soul and we want to go after Jesus. But there's a resistance. And the church of Jesus Christ yells, Rock Kazak. 
And we go after the temple of God. We turn over money tables in our own life. We say, God, come in, do it. Get all of this out of me. Why? So that I can see straight to help others. So that I can break the jaws of the evildoers, the spiritual powers that are weighing down the church or weighing down the lost. And I can see them set free to know Jesus Christ. It takes the face of a lion to exert the authority of Jesus Christ in your own life and for your own land of promise and then to go after the entire land of promise, the purchase of the cross for Jesus Christ. Rock Kazakh, O Zerubbabel. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek. Different Joshua, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land. Zerubbabel was the king. This is after the exile in Babylon. They come back, and Zerubbabel and Joshua, king and a priest, sound like Jesus, are being commissioned to rebuild the temple of God, the house. And the the commission from God is, be strong. Be strong to do it. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. What was he with them for? To rebuild the temple. According to a form, according to a pattern. God is interested in establishing his pattern and his form in this generation. But you must be strong to do it. The man made strong, and I could say it this way, the man made strong to build the temple. But charge Joshua and encourage him. This is, this is in the beginning of Deuteronomy before Moses officially makes the de- declaration of Rock Kazakh. And it says, that God's speaking to Moses, but charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him. That's the word, the same word for be strong. For he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which thou shalt see. God is looking down, and he is making a man strong for himself. And that is the Son of Man. It is the Messiah. It is the one who was built and fashioned by God himself, by the hand of God, to bring about the deliverance. Yes, he was God. But God shaped him and formed him and grew him up from a baby unto the full stature of Christ at the age of 33. And he was ready. And the commission was, be strong for this battle. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand and upon the son of man whom thou made strong for thyself. Same word. Kazakh. And now, oomph, the word U-U-M-P, P-H. I don't know if it should be spelled with O-O. I'm not exactly sure how oomph is spelled. But it means oomph. It's that drive. It's that deep substance of soul. Most of us, if we were to dig down into our soul right now, don't have anything to draw from. And so when the enemy is hitting us, and I'm saying, no, no, you're, just, you're not supposed to take that. You're supposed to just respond back and say no. You're like, I don't have anything in me to say no with. You know what you need? You need the courage of God put into your soul. You need the challenge of God. You need the general of generals to imbue, to speak forth into your life. Rock Hazak. You need something beyond you. The soldiers needed the captain. They needed the general to speak it to them. You need the word of God spoken into the depths of your soul. Kazakh, the rock-like oomph of the spiritually zealous heart, the game face of the mighty man, tenacity of soul, the gritting of the teeth of the spirit-inspired warrior, and the bearing of those teeth to the enemy. Kazakh is possessing a resolute and growling resolve for the glory of God. 
a flush of spiritual fervor, a tensing of all a soldier's muscle. When you are going into battle, say you're headed for Omaha Beach in World War II, you need this. Because that, those bullets are real bullets. And there is every propensity within you to cower in a moment like this. But you are a soldier and you have a job to do and you know what that job is. It's a clear command. There's no retreat here. It's unto death. And we will, we will run straight into fire. Straight into the oncoming bullets. Everything within you will cower, naturally speaking. But I say to you, rock kazak. Be strong and of good courage. Be not dismayed. Be not fearful. Fear nothing. Dread not what the enemy can do to you. You move forward knowing that you are enfolded in my grace. You march. And you march with resolute confidence. That's kazak. The other word in the Hebrew is amatz. These are the two that go together. Good courage. Kazak and amatz. It's heavenly audacity. It's rushing headlong into the most hazardous and impossible battles without pausing to consider the impossibilities. It's a confidence in victory even before the field is taken. I like that line. It's a confidence in victory even before the field is taken. We won. Like you haven't even fought yet. No, we won. It's done. It's done in the heavenlies. I know it's done. How can you be so confident? I don't see it. The enemy's still standing there. It's done. It's a confidence. It's a motz. It's, it's kazak and amats at large within the Christian soul to say, I'm resolute, I'm determined, there's a growl within me. We have won already. When you know that you've won, did you know that you work with a greater tenacity? You, when you know that the victory is sure, you're not pushed around by anything. I mean, bullets can be flying, they can be whizzing by your ear. You've won. You're not in that dreadful state of unknowing, well, how could the battle turn? We don't know. We've won. And the Christian must have a motz. They must have that substance of faith in their soul for battle. It's lambs moving with liquid ferocity straight into the lion's lair. You know how ridiculous that is? To have a lamb go into a lion's lair? That's rock zock. That's it. It's lambs going straight into hell and taking the gates of Gaza, ripping them off their hinges and walking away with them. It's lambs doing it. And we do it as lambs with the faces of lions. Confident of supernatural triumph. Amats means swift-footed, all-believing, super-conquering, prevailing faith in the Lord of battles. Kazakh plus Amats equals the necks of the five kings. It means the necks of the five kings in your life, and it means the necks of the five kings in the church life, and it means the necks of the five kings in anyone who will bend their knee and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. It means an absolute annihilation of everything that stands against your soul in becoming what God intended it to be. That is a gospel that isn't preached today. That is the gospel I am compelled to preach. And that is one of triumph and victory. That God is able. Everything in the Bible testifies to the fact that God is able. The only thing today that testifies differently is human experience. 
And I say, we base our confidence not on human experience, but on the fact of the revealed word of God. What God says is good enough for me. And that's what I'll preach. That's what I'll encourage. And it's been revealed in my own life. There is victory. There is strength. When someone stands in this position, there is strength. Quit you like men. The word in the Greek, andridzomai. The war cry of Joshua lives on. We go from Hebrew to Greek. So now we lose rock kazak. We lose kazak and amats. So what do we get? Andridzomai. Quit you like men. Be a man. This is actually Paul speaking to the bride of Christ. Be a man. Because that means something in the Hebrew culture. The man is the first sufferer. The man is the one to take the hit. Bride of Christ. You are made strong to be poured out for the weak. You're the ones that are supposed to bear your chest, chest to fight for those that don't have the strength. You are the intercessors. You are the strong ones. Doesn't matter if you're a guy or a girl. That's the quit you like men. Watch you stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. Paul continues the same war cry passed on to Timothy. He staggered not, speaking of Abraham, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This is rock husak in the New Testament. This is it. We oftentimes look at these things, oh, they're just nice statements. This is the preview right before the armor of God. This is right at that point where literally we are being said, this is why we are strong. We have Christ as our shield. We have the face of a lion growling within us. We have Kazakh and we have Amats. Is there anything else we need? We have God in all his fullness. Be strong. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Okay, now I know the power team has taken this hostage and treated it as the most ridiculous and paltry idea that you can bend a bar and that you can blow up a water bottle. You can do everything you need for the glory of Jesus Christ. I don't think God cares about blowing up water bottles, but I do know that he wants to stretch out the necks of the five kings and stick your foot squarely upon it. He has defeated the enemy. You can't fight those five kings on your own any more than you can walk into a lion's cage and take on a lion. It's the lion tamer that can do that. But if you walk in with the lion tamer, he'll get the lion to lay down, and he'll stretch out the lion's neck, and you can put your foot upon it, not because of your authority, not because of your strength, but because of his. You're a lamb, remember that. But you're the lamb with the face of a lion because the living God of Israel dwells within you. And I thank Christ Jesus, this is Paul speaking again, our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. That enables the same word as strengthens. It's the grace of God at work in Paul's life. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by, the preaching, by, by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. So in Hebrews 11, it says, The men of faith quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. As little lambs, they were given the faces of lions. 
waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. That's the New Testament, by the way. And it's giving a picture of what faith does. It's giving a, a picture of what Kazakh and Amats put together mean in the Christian soul. It means strength. It means confidence. And it means walking forward. You may not feel it in you, but God wants to speak the war cry of ancient Israel to your soul. To rise up and to be a victor. The bride made ready for battle. So when I say the bride of Christ needs the manly stuff, and women say, well, Proverbs 31 is our preference. Not many women actually say that. Well, women get Proverbs 31. You know what Proverbs 31 is? It does delineate a pattern for femininity. There's no doubt about it. But it also shows the bride of Christ. It's the bride made ready. It's the bride the way she ought to be. It's more than just femininity. It's a picture of a bride. The bride made ready for what? For battle. How many brides, you picture this long, nice robe, you know, and dress, and then she's equipped with like a shield and a sword. She girdeth her loins with strength and strengtheneth her arms. God comes to the bride and says, this is Proverbs 31. Rock, kasak. And the bride goes, You know those moments when you tense up and it's like a fist is made? One of the the statements I've oftentimes made is that there are certain moments in life, there are certain statements in the Bible, there are certain things I hear in culture that literally cause my right hand to ball up into a fist. It causes a tension within my life, and it's a good tension. Jesus says, be angry, yet sin not. In other words... There is an anger, a righteous indignation when you see a lamb of God being taken by a wolf as his meal. There should be something aroused within you that causes a bawling of the fist, that causes a tensing of every muscle within your body. That's Rakuzak. That's exactly what it is. It is a spiritual tensing. It is in your spirit, man. You rise up and you say, no. And you believe in the power of your God. And you're not going to stand by and do nothing. Something must be done in this generation. Truth is falling in the streets. The word of God is being blasphemed. Jesus Christ is being redefined. Not on our watch. Rock Kazakh, church of God. Let's rise up and take what belongs to God. For his sake. But how do we do it? We do it as lambs. And that bothers us. Because we want to be angry and sin. But God says, be angry and sin not. I have made you lambs. But don't worry. My lambs don't lose against the wolves. We are lambs that are known as super conquering lambs. We are lambs that mock all the power of earth and hell. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. We are lambs with a growl of a lion. Because the Lion of Judah lives within us. And he wins his battles. So yes, we are weak, but he makes us strong through that weakness. Because as we yield and we say, I can't fight this on my own. He goes, rock, kazak. And he challenges us to march into the lion's lair as lambs. 
fully knowing that we are lambs, but that the lion of the tribe of Judah within us will win and take what is rightfully his. And as we reach out to grab those gates of Gaza, as little lambs, they lift off their hinges and we carry them away as little lambs. As a statement to all the heavenlies, that's impossible. A lamb couldn't do that. And as you're carrying away the gate, you say, you're exactly right. It's the God who is in me that is doing it. That's rock kazak. We are not cowards. We are strong for the battle. And those five kings that stand against your life, whatever they are, control, pride, lust, fear, anxiety, there's all sorts of things that could be defined as the five kings in our life. You be strong and of good courage to go into this battle and to recognize that those necks must stretch out before the name of Jesus Christ. And you have the privilege of sticking your foot, your little lamb's hoof, on those necks. Could you imagine what that would look like? Someone needs to give me a good picture of this one. And the lamb, you know, with the the wolf stretched out and the lamb's hoof in the air crying victory. That's Christianity. We win because he won.